when I got hit, it was, I mean, it startled me so much. I, I didn't want to move because I knew the Mayo was coming immediately after that. They tried because there really wasn't like a countdown where I could brace myself. It was just sit there. You got hit. It was kind of like what happened. And then I didn't want to move because if I turn around, I get the Mayo right in the face. So uh, it was really like one of those just sit still, brace yourself, deal with it and, and move on. But I did miss an opportunity. I could have just like gotten up and stormed out of the chair or something at that point and, and, uh, and, and, and avoided it, but all in good fun and certainly beats the alternative of losing the game and, and not getting dumped with Mayo. Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, I am calling this the USC pod. <laughs> These podcasts are just getting a little bit more unhinged as the offseason goes on. By the end, we'll just be like the Joker and the Riddler doing college football previews. <laughs> yes, it's going to get real confusing in a bit here because we've got Shane Beamer coming up later on. We are Let's also go. going to... Yeah, Shane is, uh, as I think many will see from the interview, as many, many said after the Sam Pittman interview, it's like, how can you not root for that guy? Just like very easy guy, not at the place yet where he's hateable in my opinion at all. So it was great to be able to, to have him back on. So uh, look forward to that. We're also gonna end with a 2022 SEC quarterback edition of Bold and Brash. But this is gonna get confusing because we're gonna dig into some USC things first, as in Southern Cal, like the Trojans, the program that Lincoln Riley just accepted a billion dollars to go to. So. First part of the so pod, put the USC. South Carolina head coach in the USC podcast. Yes, yes. Poor timing on my part, but I, I promise I have a reason for uh, wanting to talk Trojans today, Southern Cal as well. So first part of the pod, USC is Southern Cal. And then the second part of the pod with Shane Beamer, any sort of USC reference that comes up, assume that he is referring to the program that he coaches and not USC Southern Cal. All right, simple like enough. Playing, yeah. Since Okay. Sources tell me Lincoln Riley's first practice was flawless. One observer noted some are calling it the greatest practice ever on a college campus. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Colin Coward, who tweeted that on Tuesday night. Whether Coward was being sarcastic or not, I really don't know. And I don't really care that much. Of course, that got quote tweeted out the wazoo because it's literally impossible on every front to make that determination, especially after just one practice with a new coach. Didn't stop me from quote tweeting it. Of course I had to, you had to just pile on. It's just sitting there, he's begging you to do it. But I thought, you know what? In honor of Coward, I decided to do a very cowardish open today. Will, what do you think that means? Um, a lot of like ex-wife references probably. Uh, not, not too many ex-wife references. We're not going to get, uh, not, not necessarily, but it is a comparison heavy open today to talk about USC, the Southern Cal USC. USC is the rich kid. USC is like the kid who was born into a wealthy family and was given a head start on the rest of the competition. Instead of well-off parents, USC's advantage is obviously the weather. And you know, being a Power 5 school with a campus in Southern California is a pretty distinct advantage that programs like Minnesota or Iowa State cannot match, especially with it being arguably the biggest hotbed in the country for high school talent. They, that is something that USC will have no matter who is the head coach there. For this example, I guess that would make Minnesota and Iowa State the kids who were born into like your standard middle-class family. 
That's what I was growing up. I had friends who were born into more lower middle class, and I had two friends who were maybe not quite one percenters, but they were probably pretty close to that. Like they were, they were very well off. Being a rich kid doesn't guarantee success. It guarantees a head start and perhaps higher expectations to continue the family legacy or whatever we're talking about. These two rich kid friends that I had, for, uh, this, for this podcast, we're gonna change their names. We're gonna call them Joseph and Robbie, all right? Joseph, early on, I remember, I used to just kind of roll my eyes at him because I knew him back in fourth grade. His parents would drive me to basketball practices and he'd have the luxury SUV because his dad was a really successful doctor. One time, I remember we were at a basketball camp in sixth grade and afterwards, he's like, let's go across the street and get Panera. I'm like, <laughs> I'm a sixth grader. I don't have money to go to Panera on a whim, like on a Wednesday. What, what do you think you're doing here? Mm -hmm. Joseph didn't think like that. This is the kid who had his bar mitzvah at the Shedd Aquarium in downtown Chicago. Is in, they rented out the entire Shedd Aquarium in downtown Chicago. No way. So it was just y'all and some whales? It was unreal. That sounds <laughs> awesome, incredible. actually, yeah. Yes. 13-year-old um, Connor did not appreciate what that was that day. I would love to be able to go back and do that as an adult. But that's the kind of money that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. So you would think that, that Joseph eventually did what a lot of rich kids do. That is screw up a few times, like maybe mess around in high school and college and then go on to get some well-paying job that he hates or kind of flounder and just struggle to have any sort of direction whatsoever. Joseph, however, was not wired that way. In seventh grade, he got cut from the basketball team. Kids had just kind of gotten better than him, myself included, to be 100% honest with you. I didn't make my team in sixth grade, I made it in seventh grade. I don't I know this for certainty. Right? Oh, same exact thing. Yeah, I wore 23, like, you know, had the tongue out whenever I dunked, the whole deal, you get this. I don't know this with certainty, but I can bet it was one of the first times in Joseph's life when he was told, no, you can't do this. So that entire year, he worked his tail off. And I remember him showing up to tryouts the next year and everybody's like, Joseph is on a mission. Of course, he makes the team. In high school, I knew that he had fun. He probably made some mistakes here or there, which, you know, whatever, like you know, his kid that would occasionally have a party at his house or, or something like that. But he became the best tennis player in the state of Illinois. He ends up going to Emory and is now crushing it in the business world. I think he's doing like consulting or something like that. Joseph has done real, real well for himself. He was the rich kid who realized that he had that advantage and he capitalized on it. My other childhood friend, Robbie? Uh, not so much, not so much. Robbie had a dad who was an accountant. If his mom ever worked, I don't think it was anything more than part-time here or there. I don't remember any job that she would have had despite the fact that this kid lived right by me. I used to hang out with him all the time. But I know Robbie's dad did well. And so Robbie was set up with college taken care of, he can go anywhere he wanted. They weren't pressuring him into a major or anything like that. Robbie was mostly lazy and every once in a while he'd had these little spurts where he'd think the light bulb maybe kind of clicked with him. He'd go a few months training really hard for baseball or he'd get into his diet or something like that, but ultimately he could never really stay on track. He went to college with me and dropped out after a semester only to come back and I think he left again later on. I'm not sure if he ever got his degree, 
but he never really figured out what he wanted to major in for a while. And he thought he wanted to do politics. And I remember his dad had sort of helped him out with that. I don't know what happened with that because we sort of lost touch. Um, but I know that he smoked more than any person I had ever met. And in the political world, those two things don't really coincide. Can't really pick both. Even in modern times, it just doesn't really work like that. Talking about Side tangent. Darts? Yeah, like ripping darts. Uh, no, not 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 six. I mean, smoked a lot of weed. Okay. A lot of weed. <laughs> I was just trying to say, I was like, I didn't know if this guy was a chain smoker, if he had like Snoop Dogg vibes. Now that you've explained him as a person, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, no further questions. Yes. Uh, so side tangent here. One time, Robbie and his dad drove through Nebraska a few months after I had started working out there. And they they both kind of made several offhanded remarks about me working for a local news, uh, news local newspaper in a place that very few people knew about. And to be honest with you, to this day, it kind of pisses me off because I was the one out there grinding, working my tail off, trying to you know make a career path by any means necessary while he was the one who was sort of floating around aimlessly without any real, real direction. Like, how dare you look down on me? Like, don't, don't come in here where I have tried to make a home and make a living and then say that to me, but whatever. I am pretty sure that Robbie to this day is still living at home. I know he's had a couple of run-ins with the law. His parents continue to support him and whenever I'll run into his mom when I'm back home, she'll always be sure to prop him up in some ways because hey, nobody wants to be known as the wealthy parents who have a 30 something son still living at home. Like, real life ain't Shit's Creek, okay? <laughs> yeah. USC has major, major Alexis vibes. Both born with a silver spoon in their mouths, both kind of a hot mess who just somehow make these self-sabotaging decisions to torpedo their direction. There are moments when they look like they have things figured out, like when USC's dominating the sport with Reggie Bush, Matt Leiner, but as we saw with the sanctions right after the Pete Carroll era and all that with the fallout, even those moments can be fleeting. And maybe it's unfair to say that a seven year stretch is fleeting. Alexis did date the vet, Ted, for multiple seasons, looked like she had things figured out, but Let's look at my lifetime as it relates to USC, which dates back to 1990. That 2002 to 2008 stretch is the only time we ever saw USC have consecutive top 10 seasons. It's basically one era of football we're talking about. Since 1990, USC finished unranked 14 times. Yeah, I'm gonna blow you away with this one too. Oh yeah. Since, Will, here's a question for you. Since 1990, how many times do you think USC was unranked in the preseason poll? Just the preseason poll. Oh man, so they always are like in that receiving votes. Like they'll sneak in there just based on- We're not talking about receiving votes. We're not talking no, about no, receiving no, no, votes. No, 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 I know, but they always feel like one of those teams that like writers don't know to rank, so they just rank them. I'm yes. gonna say, so since 1990, so that is, da, 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 like 20, oh, that's like 32 years. So I'm gonna say, how much preseason? Let's go pre like, let's go 22. We, I, I may be asked that question in a, in a confusing way. Okay. I'm asking you, how many times do you think USC was unranked in the preseason? Oh, preseason, flip the number, my bad, flip the number. So unranked, yeah, I'd say like probably 10 years, yeah. Only four times, that's it. Yep. Oh, only four yep. times ever that when you looked at that preseason poll, that AP top 25 going into week one, USC wasn't there. 1992, 1998, 2001, and uh, 2019. Wow. 11 times they started ranked and finished unranked. 
Even Notre Dame, which is probably considered the most overrated program in the country if you ask the average college football fan, mm -hmm. only has nine instances since 1990 in which it started ranked and finished unranked. As we know in this sport though, starting off as a ranked team matters. It's gonna give you a little bit of that advantage. If you're gonna also win a couple games early, we're gonna be talking about you more. People are talking about you more throughout the off season. It matters. As we know in life, starting off with upper middle class parents matters, but it's not everything. Lauren and I watched Goodwill Hunting last night. It is an absolute all time movie. I am not even the, the biggest Robin Williams guy. It is, um, it, look, the best scene, and I, I say that knowing, rest in peace, Robin Williams. He's had a, some unbelievable movies. Goodwill Hunting is easily his best, easily his best. The best scene in the entire movie, he's actually not in. Hmm. It's when they go to the Harvard bar, the Harvard bar. Did I do that right? Yeah. Is that good, Boston? Um, ben Affleck starts sweet talking uh, those girls. The dude with the, the blonde ponytail then tries to step in and show off his Harvard education and dunk on Ben Affleck to try and impress these girls because Ponytail recognizes that Affleck is about as far from attending Harvard as Dorchester is from San Francisco. That's a little Boston humor for you. But then Matt Damon, aka Will, he comes over the top and basically says, hey, I can tell you everything you're about to say and then some, but unlike you, I didn't waste my money on some $150,000 education and I just got all this with having a public library card that cost me a buck 50. Ponytail is USC. Ponytail thought he'd be able to just drop a few lines from a textbook to, to impress these girls. For a good chunk of the last few decades, USC thought it could just have this perfectly located campus and sort of ride off the tradition of that team who dominated the 60s and 70s before recruiting was national and before you could watch teams that weren't USC, Notre Dame, Alabama, Michigan. It's like, you still have to upgrade facilities. You still have to recruit nationally. You still have to hold coaches to a higher standard and you still have to have a certain level of toughness to actually sustain success. USC didn't undergo significant changes to the Coliseum from 1995 to 2015. And they were finally like, huh, it appears we're getting passed by. And it also got totally passed by in the recruiting trail with Clay Helton. Mm -hmm. I forgot to mention the, the best part of the, the scene at the bar and Goodwill Hunting. I don't know how I left this out, but it's when they're walking out at the end of the night after Matt Damon dunked on Ponytail and ultimately got the girl that, that he was, you know, that, that originally Ben Affleck was talking to. Matt Damon then swoops in and he's able to, to kind of pique her interest. He turns around because he sees Ponytail in a booth through the glass and he goes up to the window and goes, do you like apples? And then he goes, how do you like them apples? And he slams the girl's number right against the glass. Unbelievable scene. Millions of people have seen, know exactly what I'm talking about. That's like BYU walking into a half empty Memorial Coliseum and beating USC, even though we know BYU has major limitations with recruiting because of its code and all the different things you have to do to uphold the BYU standard. BYU is starting in a hole like with that, much like Matt Damon started in a hole because he was an orphan who grew up in abusive foster homes, but that doesn't make or break you. If that was really make or break, USC would have been winning national titles the last 30 years instead of having one successful coach. Now, the expectation is that Lincoln Riley will be that next coach. After they just had the world's best practice in the history of college football. They're starting off hot, to be fair. They're one for yeah. one on practices. I mean, it's not even an, an expectation. It's a guarantee that USC is going to win a national title. Book it, etch it in stone, get the tattoos now, do whatever you want. The rich kid, can absolutely succeed. My buddy Joseph is a good reminder of that. 
even though I'm more skeptical than most, USC can absolutely succeed after it swung big to land Lincoln Riley. But paying him a nine-figure salary and getting him set up in a house with 12 bathrooms doesn't guarantee success. That's right, 12 bathrooms. Who needs that many bathrooms? I'll never know. There are hotels that don't have 12 bathrooms. It's insane. Lincoln Riley knows that. He's got a roster to rebuild. He's got a culture to overhaul. To his credit, he's done a really, really good job in the portal. I'm pretty sure a lot of people listening to this already saw the Lane Kiffin tweet with him getting the care package with the Portal King t-shirt. And Lane's like, think they meant to send this to you, Lincoln Riley. Lane being Lane, of course. Did you see the USC AD tweet the uh, Portal Rangers today? Uh, is that, that that's, that's a play on Power Rangers? Yes. Then? It was the okay. it was one of the assistant ads, not their overall ad, but it was just kind of their random athletic staff photoshopped on Power Rangers. And it was terrible. Maybe if I was a USC fan, I'd think differently, but it was one of the wackest things I've ever seen. <laughs> so I just want to talk about that for a second. It was tough. I was a big Power Rangers guy back mm-hmm. in the day. Everybody kind of had it. in my generation. I think you had that one two year stretch. You had at least one Power Rangers birthday party. Mm-hmm. I would I would think. As it relates to USC. Just because your 30-something son who's living at home is at the gym doesn't mean that he's got his life figured out and he's about to turn into a Joseph. All right? I'm not trying to shame people who don't work out here. That's not what this is about. Credit to you for being in the gym. Pete Carroll had USC figured out and won the exact way that you should at a place like that by basically creating Hollywood on a football field. Mm -hmm. It worked because he had unbelievable recruiters like Ed Ogeron, he had absurdly good offensive minds like Sark, Lane, Norm Chow, and despite the way that things kind of fizzled out with Russell Wilson in Seattle, I'd still say that Pete Carroll has an unbelievable ability to evaluate the quarterback position and that they hold them to such a high standard. That's what his staff does. Actually, speaking of that, let's go to when we had Mark Sanchez on the pod and he talked about how hard Kiffin used to ride him at USC. Well, recruiting, he was great. But once I got there, I was a highly touted recruit, like five-star guy, whatever. But I came in, just kind of kept my head down, didn't, you know, try and draw any attention to myself. But Kiff was a jerk. (laughs) He was, (laughs) he coached the receivers, was the passing game coordinator. And he couldn't wait for me to get stuff wrong in meetings. He couldn't wait for me to miss a ball uh, and be like, you know, this ain't Mission Viejo anymore. Just he was always like, and it was a tough love, which I came to find out. But he was just, he rode me so hard. I was like, this guy's a jerk. I remember telling Sark, I'm like, this guy's an asshole, man. I I don't (laughs) understand. Like, what's the deal? I thought we were all in this together. I thought we're trying to win ball games. Why is he such a jerk? And I've had some tough coaches before, but man, it just feels like he's really got it out for me. And then as soon as I became the starter, uh, everything totally flipped. And uh, he was so loyal, um, you know, so supportive. And I really appreciated those first couple years of, you know, and kids don't get to do that anymore. There's something to be said for sitting, waiting, watching Matt Liner, John David Booty, uh, and then getting your chance to go play, really understanding the offense and why you call certain plays and the play caller's purpose and intent on certain situations. That's really important stuff. And uh, I got a lot of time with Kiff and those receivers throwing after practice, learning from him, uh, his dad obviously coming around practice a lot, learning defenses, understanding football. So um, a a lot of my success is attributed to Lane and and, uh, those years at USC before I played. As much as I think USC has an incredible built-in advantage, 
it still takes all of those things working in the exact right direction to capitalize on that potential. And I guess it took a little bit of extra with the whole like buying Reggie Bush's parents a house deal, though obviously USC wasn't the only one doing that, so I'm not just gonna make that out to be a USC thing. For most of these last 30 years, USC has been the program who gets people fired up because it has a couple of those key ingredients working well. And some like to jump the gun, Colin Coward, and assume that we're about to see vintage USC just because, oh, they have a quarterback, or oh, they have this offensive mind, or oh, have you seen this linebacker, or this receiver that they have in there? And it's just so much harder than that. Maybe in a few years, USC will be back on that track and we'll look back on the Riley era combined with the NIL era and say, wow, why would anyone ever doubt this program? Or, Maybe we'll look back and wonder why Robbie is still living at home. Will, any other thoughts on that? Let me let me ask you this question. So if you have to pick one of these programs to be back, would you take, right now, USC or Miami? Something that we discussed with, uh, with Matt Hayes that I think is, um, is truly fascinating because if I'm taking the long-term approach, yeah. Uh, I'll go USC five years from now, probably, probably. And I, keep, I feel like I keep going back and forth on that. Neither of those programs are overnight flips. I really don't think that's the case. <laughs> like if, if, you are ser- if you are seriously holding out hope, if you're a USC fan, that Cowherd's tweet means that all of a sudden USC should be preseason top 10. Somebody will do the USC as a preseason top 10 team, by the way. Like that, mm-hmm. that is 100% coming. Oh yeah. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't think that either of them with the roster talent, despite what they've done in the portal, despite the staff hires, which I like, I really like the hire of Alex Grinch as their defensive coordinator at USC. I really like the hire of Josh Gaddis as the offense coordinator at Miami. It's gonna take a while. Long-term, I'd say USC, just because USC doesn't have a Clemson in their own, in their own conference. Mm-hmm. But I'm still not, I would still probably take the over on, like if, if you told me, oh, USC will win a national title in three years, I would still take the over and say, no, I would much rather say that it'd be four or something like that. Oh yeah, no, I think that, like we can kind of like make fun of Lincoln Riley for taking the easy way, which is objectively what he did. I mean, he left Oklahoma, was up for you know other jobs around the SEC, and then kind of moved west to to you know kind of own that conference, and especially with you know Mario Cristobal going to Miami, that conference is just wide open. I mean, I, maybe you're looking at Chip Kelly with USC, maybe or with um, UCLA, maybe you're looking at Utah. I don't want to obviously count them out; they've done great things lately, but. Um, but point being, you know, you, you kind of start to see why he made that decision as you start to list all these things. I, I think that stat that you gave about them being ranked in nearly every preseason is just so crazy. We see, we see with our own eyes how those seasons have finished out. Yeah, there have been, you know, we talked, we always joke about the Rose Bowl, you know, and I believe it was 2016. That it's like, yeah, they'll have one every once in a while. That's that's like a good season, but more, you know, more often than not, those seasons have been disappointments, and yet that brand is just still right there. And if you're Lincoln Riley, who you can win, you know, nine, ten games on a bad year. You know what I'm saying? It, it seems like they're at least going to be part of the national conversation for the foreseeable future. And I hate to say it, I hate to be this guy. I guess I'm turning into a boomer, but I just think college football is better when they're when they're in there. So yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting uh, era for sure. Such a boomer quote. <laughs> it is Nothing wrong with look, look. I, I love I love I love boomers. I do. I really do. <laughs> and to, to be 100 percent honest with you, there there are times in which. 
I wish I could go back in time where you only had maybe two games on TV mm -hmm. and you have that obsession with one specific program because that's what you watch and USC thrived at a time when there was that and thrived at a time when there wasn't that in the early to mid 2000s. But, you know, if you're kind of trying to figure out like, why did this thing fall apart? It's not as simple as just pointing to the sanctions of the post Pete Carroll era and saying they had too high of a standard with Lane. If you read some of the fallout of the, the Clay Helton era, you see why the cracks in the foundation happened. Like the, the Sark deal was a mess mid-season firing after he battled alcoholism, but then Helton takes over as the interim guy. And if he, if he doesn't turn it around in the latter half of 2016, USC would have hired a new coach five years earlier. Mm -hmm. Instead, they were stuck with a guy who by all accounts is super nice, super personable, but he did make tough decisions with his hires and he got blown out of the water with recruiting in that specific area. And that's why we talked about all these different quarterbacks from that part of the country going elsewhere, going to Tuscaloosa, going to Oxford, going to Clemson, despite the fact that you have this built-in advantage. The quote from one of his former assistants in that piece in The Athletic a few months ago is just so fitting. Clay got thrown the keys to a friggin' Ferrari. Not everyone can drive it, man. Not everyone can. We'll see if Lincoln Riley can drive it. Clay Helton couldn't, and he was okay with being fired if it meant not, you know, if it meant losing versus, oh, I'm gonna cheat to win. That was his big thing. Yep. And to his detriment, it hurt him. And you could have made the case that uh, his, I mean, I think the writing was on the wall with some of the staff hires he made there and why they didn't necessarily work out, but everyone wants to see the blue bloods and how they rise up again. And USC is going to be a massive conversation for as long as Lincoln Riley's there, to be 100% honest with you. So I thought today would be a good opportunity to look at that quote and to dig into a few more things. Anything else you want to hit on with USC Southern Cal? Um, no, I think that's the, uh, it concludes our first USC segment. <laughs> All right, let's kick it to Shane Beamer. Great to have the South Carolina coach back on. I was, uh, I was wondering if he would come off differently this year compared to last year. As far as I can tell, and maybe people will disagree with this, but I, I think he still sounds like the same dude who blew me away the first time that he came on. And I promise that we did not just talk about Mayo. So here is Shane Beamer. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Shane Beamer. Shane, I, I got a, a lot really that I want to get to today. Um, but And I promise we're not going to just ask all Mayo questions. We're not going to do that. I do have to start, though, with you tweeting out that you took a break from Mayo, as one should, given how much Mayo you were exposed to. But you are now a Mayo spokesperson for Duke's Mayo. Um, be honest, they, they basically gave you an open invitation to be that after the way that things played out in the bowl game. <laughs> uh, I, think our, <laughs> I think our university... Uh, saw an unbelievable uh, opportunity to capitalize on and relationship with Duke's Mayo. I think Duke's Mayo sees an all awesome opportunity to uh, potentially do some things with uh, the University of South Carolina Athletics Department. And, and uh, certainly the fact that I got beat up by the Mayo cooler when it got dumped on me, they certainly <laughs> they owe me a little something, that's for sure. OK, could you have passed a concussion test after that? <laughs> Probably not. It was more. And it wasn't so much of in the head. It was more like the back of my neck and uh, where they got me in. So it was certainly that muscle like right there in the back of your neck was was it was definitely sore for a uh, for a couple of days. 
I mean, if, if that happens to me, my first reaction is, didn't you guys practice this? Have you not dumped an entire Gatorade tub of mayo on somebody before? Like the execution, everything up to that point was flawless. And then you get to that point, I would have turned around and been like, really? Like, what are we doing? Saban's allowed to get mad at his players when they dump the Gatorade and they hit him in the head. You should yeah. be allowed to be mad that the volunteers, whoever it was, could not properly dump the mayo. No, it's a good point. It, uh, when, when I got hit, it was, I mean, it, it startled me so much. I, I didn't want to move because I knew the mayo was coming immediately after that. They tried because there really wasn't like a countdown where I could brace myself. It was just sit there. You got hit. It was kind of like what happened. And then I didn't want to move because if I turn around, I get the mayo right in the face. So uh, it was really like one of those just sit still, brace yourself, deal with it and, and move on. But I did miss an opportunity. I could have just like gotten up and stormed out of the chair or something at that point and, and, uh, and, and, and avoided it, but all in good fun and certainly beats the alternative of losing the game and, and not getting dumped with Mayo. You, uh, you certainly found joy that day. And yes, that was an absolute dig at Dennis Dodd. Um, I won't ask you to revisit that and I'll instead just hate on the Cardinal fan here. Um, I feel like your game should be shown to all the people who say bowl games don't matter. How much did that day sort of lead to you just having all this offseason momentum and you guys are kind of the ultimate good vibes team in college football right now? Yeah, no, I think it was huge. I, I uh, was telling someone the other day, you know, all all bowl games are big, in my opinion, for the teams that are playing in them and for what you just said. I mean, you're never going to hear me say there's too many bowl games because these young men and coaches and staff work way too hard. And and to be able to go to experience a bowl game is is really special. Uh, so all bowl games are big in their own way, but some bowl games are really bigger than others. Uh, for the reasons you just alluded to with us and, you know, for us to win three out of our last five games, for us to beat Florida and Auburn down the stretch, uh, you know, and then to finish uh, with a with a huge win against a, you know, uh, someone that I've got a ton of respect for in Mac Brown, a North Carolina team that was ranked top 10 preseason um, in Charlotte, a city where South Carolina hadn't had a ton of success their last couple times up there. I mean, it's just it was so big for so many reasons, and 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 the the energy and the positivity and excitement that just that one win has you know created uh, has been really cool to see, and and just so happy for our players and, and fans and everyone that follows South Carolina football, because that was a great day for South Carolina being in Charlotte where we've got a ton of alumni and fans that live up there with tons of Tar Heel fans. Uh, so it was really, really impactful and has continued to be. And you got to do a good job of not living in the past. I mean, we've moved on and it's the 2022 team right now trying to get ready for the 2022 season. But certainly uh, we're going to do everything in our power to continue to capitalize uh, on that day in Charlotte because it was really, really big for us for a lot of reasons. You've, uh, you've told the story of Spencer's commitment. And for those who don't know, I'll kind of give a, a brief rundown where Austin Sogner's dad essentially suggested that you should reach out because you had already had that relationship with him. Obviously, you had a few calls, but you didn't even need to host him on a visit because 
you know, like you already had that relationship there and, you know, you didn't need to conveniently have Darius Rucker in the recording studio being like, Oh, Hey Spencer, what's going on? Uh, then, you know, they call you up and they let you know that it's happening. You step outside your house and literally scream with excitement because you didn't want to scare anybody in your household. But, uh, my, my question is that that made no difference whatsoever. You stepping outside of your house, surely you scared people in your household with yelling when Spencer Radler committed to South Carolina. Yeah. My, uh, uh, my kids are probably, were probably even more excited than, than I was, uh, about it to, you know, they love Stog, you know, cause I was the tight ends coach at Oklahoma and, and he was one of our tight ends. So Austin had been in our house multiple times at, you know, Oklahoma. So my kids loved him. And then obviously they were there with Spencer. So they were certainly excited. They know my wife and our three children, they realized what, um, what, uh, great additions to our program. Both those young men were, so they were just as excited and I could have screamed inside, could have screamed outside. It would have been my kids and wife, you know, excited about it as well. Cause we certainly got better as a football team that day. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if I heard like my significant others scream that loud, I would assume bloody murder has happened. But with you, it's like, well, you're such a positive guy. You probably yell like that a decent amount of times. Like were they, was the initial reaction like, Oh, concern. Or they're like, all right, you just got somebody big. This is, this is going to be good news and not bad news. No, I think they had a pretty good idea because a couple hours before that, you know, I, I had talked or texted with Spencer and, and, and Austin and they had, essentially alluded to the fact that a decision was coming pretty quickly. Yeah. So I want to say when I saw him coming, it was, it was a, I think I said, this is cause I think it's Spencer's dad's name popped up on the caller ID and then they were all on the call together. And I remember saying, Oh, you know, this is Spencer. This is Spencer's dad calling. So they, they knew what to expect. It's kind of like when Ray Tanner hired me and I got a phone call from Ray Tanner. My wife knew he was either calling to say we're hiring somebody else or we're offering you a job. I don't know if the phone call from Spencer was as <laughs> intense as <laughs> it wasn't, but it was the same mindset that, you know, we're either going to get some really good news or some really bad news uh, on this call. And, and fortunately it was some great news. Everyone's talking about Spencer and understandably. So um, you have a different perspective on him than, than I think any of us do, even though we're the ones in the media who are going to sit here and talk ad nauseum about those expectations. What do you think expectations should be for him? Uh, I mean, I think Spencer has high expectations for himself and, and, you know, uh, carries himself that way. And, you know, I think with Spencer, it's come here and just be the very best player he can be and make this football team the very best that, that it can be. And he's done a great job of coming in, he and the other transfers that we've brought in of just being themselves and, and blending right into the locker room. And, and the, the transition, it's not easy, you know, to come into another program and, uh, in January, like he did. And then all of a sudden you're in a different locker room and, and with a new team. Uh, and he's done a great job of, of acclimating himself to our program and uh, just trying to be the very best player, leader, person that, that he can be. And, you know, his talent speaks for itself and, and he's got a lot of work to do. But, uh, you know, as, as we record this, we've, we're four practices through uh, spring practice and, and he's had a really, really good four practices of uh, um, jumping in and, and learning this system, trying to marry it with some of the things that he did at Oklahoma and, and things like that as well. 
it's cool to see South Carolina have a guy, you know, it, it feels a little bit different. And I, you know, I talked to my guy, Brad Crawford about this a lot about how just it's unique. And, you know, South Carolina has never had an all SEC quarterback, never had a quarterback drafted since they've been a member of the SEC. I, I know your job is to focus on winning football games, let the rest take care of itself. But at the game's most important position, is, is that something that matters? Like, does that, does that carry significance for you? No, it's huge. I mean, you, you've got to have that. And we're excited about, you know, the other quarterbacks that we have as well. I mean, there were a lot of expectations for Luke Doty going into last season and, and rightfully so. And I hate that Luke, you know, got hurt midway through the season or before the season then midway through the season and didn't have the year that he wanted, but, you know, he's out there competing and, and trying to get better and, and uh, young freshmen that we have here in the program that we have high expectations for. So quarterback and all those positions, are, are critical and, and everyone's competing and trying to get better, but I don't care what level you are, NFL, college, high school, you've got to have a great quarterback. And, you know, it's, it's proven. You look at the best teams in the NFL, they got a quarterback. And you look at the LA Rams, getting no disrespect of Jared Goff, but you bring in Matthew Stafford and they win a Super Bowl. And all the teams across the NFL and free agency right now that are trying to, you know, sign quarterbacks. So certainly when you have a great quarterback, uh, it makes um, it makes everything better. The spirit of the practices, the confidence, the way that the defense uh, is challenged, the way that the offense is able to produce. I mean, it's just uh, uh, that's a that's a key position, probably unlike any other position in sports, you know, because it is so much uh, so much is expected of that position. And, and that position affects winning and losing, you know, so directly. I think a lot of people would look at the Mayo Bowl and the momentum you have right now. And you're probably sick of hearing that word momentum because it's like, what does it really mean in year two? But they would look at your situation and say, that, oh, he's still in the honeymoon phase. And I, I disagree with that because I, I think down late at home against Vandy, the honeymoon phase is over. Like there's no, hey, good vibes aren't going to get you out of this situation. And you make the switch to Zeb Nolan in that spot. And if that doesn't work, you get blasted for it. And I think you know that. I, I know you can't necessarily think about the downside of your decisions, but in those defining moments with quarterbacks, and this was something that a lot of people talked about with you and, and your background, how you're going to handle those situations. Did you find yourself leaning on a particular coach that you've worked with in the past to kind of trust some of that judgment or maybe hark back to certain situations? No. Um, <laughs> in an in a in-game situation, not necessarily. Um, you know, you go all the way back to – you go all the way back to uh, August. Yeah, I guess it would have been August uh, when, when, when Luke got hurt. And certainly – bringing a graduate assistant out of the office and onto the football field. It's a little unorthodox. Uh, but so I remember talking to uh, Lincoln Riley. I called Lincoln back in August. I certainly rely on him and, and pick his brain on things because I've been with him most recently and, you know, um, worked for Kirby Smart, but it's not really – I can't really call Kirby and necessarily, yeah. you know, get ex strategy like that considering we're playing them week three last season. Uh, but I talked to Lincoln about it and and uh, and I think other coaches and other sports, the heads golf, the men's golf coach at the University of Oklahoma, Ryan Hibble, is one of my best friends. And, and they you know compete for the national championship in golf. But he's a great coach. It's not football. It's golf. But, you know, I bounced that idea off Ryan Hibble. Like, is this crazy thing to bring <laughs> our graduate assistant to the field and potentially being our starting quarterback? So there's a. Uh, 
there's a small group of people that I rely on and, and other coaches and college athletics that, that aren't in the SEC that I'll, you know, talk to. But in that situation, you're right. It was one of those you realized it was a critical moment uh, in your season at that point, you know, that Vanderbilt game. And, and it was one of those, you know, you, you make this move, you, uh, and you put Zeb in, this either goes really well or it, or it doesn't. And, and uh, I knew that was a critical moment. And I think really for that, it's just, you know, you, you, a lot of those decisions that you're making during the game is based on a lot of, um, uh, intel, if you will, from months and weeks and days leading up to that game. And then honestly, a lot of it's just a, a gut feel. And, and uh, Pete Limbo is our special teams coordinator and associate head coach, and he's been a head coach. And there are things during the game where I'll talk to him and, you know, what are you thinking about this and what do you think about that? Uh, and that situation with, with Zeb and Luke that day, it was more just, you know, kind of a – just a gut feel. And um, obviously Luke's health, you know, affected that situation a little bit as well, not being able to run around as much and, and it worked out great, but it's one of those things when you sit in this chair, um, you know, I mean, every decision, every decision is going to be magnified and uh, you've got to be willing to, I mean, as I sit here at my desk, I've got a, a, a note that says when you're in this chair, you have to love making tough decisions and, um, and you go with your gut and, and uh, the, the best knowledge you have about those decisions and, and hope it works out. Um, on the offense side of the ball, everybody's really excited, especially after the bowl game. Jaheim Bell, DK Joyner, um, DK, Dak, whatever you want to call him. He's had a billion different names, billion different roles at South Carolina. I, I got a, a suggestion. Everybody's anal about the depth chart in college football. It's like, oh, who, what's, what are we going to release? What are we not going to release? put them under football player and don't worry about position. Like, no, I, I know Jaheim Bell is like, just he's listed as a wide back. I saw Satterfield call them, you know, Debo 2.0, which that's, that's an incredible thing to say, but just football player. And then just let them get on the field, get touches in whatever way possible. Is it kind of trending in that direction for how they're going to be used in 2022? Yeah, I think so. And I think you could add, you know, a few of those guys on our offense to that. And we're probably not a lot different than a lot of schools, but to me, it's, you find out, you know, what those guys your, your players on offense, what they can do. And then let's try and figure out a way to get our best guys on the field. And we've got a few more playmakers and a little bit more depth than what we had at the skill positions on offense last year at this time. And, and they can do a lot of different things. We've got some running backs that um, can do a little more out of the backfield and, 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 and have unique skill sets and the receiving group has come along. And then Jaheen, I mean, people, people obviously remember that, you know, he caught the two, uh, long explosive touchdown passes in the bowl game, but we also handed the ball to him on the first play of the game for about a 12 yard run yeah. or something on a little counter play. And um, he's just, he can do a lot. There's no question about it. And the more you can keep teams off balance, uh, the better, but you're exactly right. To me, Jaheim's just football player. I mean, we recruited him in Oklahoma when I was there. Lincoln loved him. I loved him as a player and he can do a lot. He's got a lot to improve on like all our guys do, but um DK has shown how flexible and multiple he can be, Jaheim. And, and the more, you know, we tell our guys all the time, the more you can do, the better, uh, whether that's offense, defense, special teams. And we certainly got a lot of guys on offense that can, that can do a lot of different things. The post-game celebrations are uh, – they're must-see TV watching you. I mean, that was, that was one of the things that we learned in year one. Probably could have predicted that, of course, given the, the support you have from your family. But uh, what was the best moment that you shared with, uh, with your mom and dad after a game? Mm, um, 
good question. Uh, all of them on the field, you know, were pretty special. All the first, you know, first game and first SEC win. But I think probably, um, probably the probably the Florida game. You know, we we won that one, um, and or maybe in Auburn, uh, we won that one to get bowl eligible. And, and then my dad just you know saying great job and telling me how proud he was. And then you know after the games, I, I do the. I do the post-game press conference with the media. And then I go and I do post-game radio with Todd Ellis, our, our radio uh, play-by-play guy. And then I record the, the weekly coaches show, the television show. So I do all that after the game. So it's a while after a game before I leave the stadium. And um, after that game, my parents stayed with me the whole time, went to the press conference, went to the radio, then went with me to do the TV show. Um, and then they rode home with me and my wife and kids, they had already, they were long gone. They were ready to go home. Uh, but riding home with my parents after that game was, was pretty cool, you know, and, and just sitting in traffic and being in the car and people, you know, recognizing me if I'm stopped at a stoplight or just sitting in traffic and fans coming up and banging on the windows and wanting to high five out the windows and things like that and honking horns. That was a pretty cool moment because there'd been so many times where I had, you know, rode home with my dad after a win and, and he's the head coach. So to be, you know, riding home with him in the car and after a huge win like that, where you become bowl eligible uh, back to the house, that was a, that was a pretty cool night, but a pretty cool post game and, and time that we were able to spend together. Just the three of us. I, uh, I realized that whenever South Carolina does anything on special teams, I, I just say, oh, that's Beamer ball. Like any good play, you just like that's the natural default. It, it probably should be. There are probably tons of ways in which you and your dad are similar. But what did this first year as a head coach teach you about maybe your differences that you have between you and your dad? I probably show um, I'm probably a little bit more, you know, emotional on the sidelines than maybe he was. I, I, I try and he was, yeah, he was very like steady as a head coach and always used to say it, never get too high, never get too low. Um, and I feel like I do a decent job of that, but you know, you never really saw him sprinting down the sidelines and jumping on players backs and things like that. Like, like I've done. So that's probably one thing is just that. And, you know, other than that, other it's really a lot of uh, a lot of similarities. I think our demeanor and things on the sideline are probably pretty similar. You know, during the game and, and the way that I try and handle myself during the week, I uh, try and be a lot like him. Just the consistency that that he showed. So I'd say I got a lot more qualities like him than 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 not like him. But I may be, you know, I don't want to use the word passionate, but probably a little bit more overly uh, excited when when great things happen. He doesn't have to like calm you down or anything like that after a game, does he? Like I, I always picture you always look so fired up after a game, and he's always like, "Hey, you know, one week at a time. We got to even keel. We got to ride this out. Like it's the SEC. You know, it'll chew you up. It'll spit you out. Like does he? He doesn't have to like you know talk talk you down off of wins, does he? He doesn't, or at least he hasn't tried to. You know, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure there's some post game press conferences or, or things where you know I maybe say something I, I went viral after the Georgia game when I was talking about you know all the five stars and and I was pretty fired up and uh after the after the uh the the, the bowl win in that post-game press conference so I'll say things things sometimes and I know if he's like in the room 
if he is in the room, like I'm thinking, or even if he's not in a room and he's watching, I'm thinking, God, dad's not going to like that. You know, <laughs> he wouldn't, he, he doesn't probably think that was good, but no, he does. And I think usually after the games, because you know, this from being around it, I mean, it's just, it's so emotional and draining for three and a half hours that like when that game's over, you're beat. And um, he's never had to calm me down or anything like that. Cause usually at that point I'm, you know, uh, beat down myself after the last three and a half hours of, of competing. And, and uh, he usually doesn't say a whole lot. It's really just, um, you know, good win and, and thought you guys played hard and, and all that. Do you have more texts waiting for you after the, uh, the Florida game or after the mail bowl? Um, honestly, I think Florida game, uh, for sure. Cause that was, you know, that was on ESPN prime time. Everybody saw it. That in the Auburn game, yeah. uh, those text messages were up, uh, I think it was like 200 plus both those games Dang. from a lot of people. It was pretty cool. You know, people that, that, um, you didn't realize would be watching had a bunch after the Mayo bowl for sure. Uh, and that was cool. But, but the Florida and Auburn games being on prime time on a Saturday night on either SEC network or ESPN, I forget which one it was, was, uh, was, uh, there were a lot of those nights for sure. You have a team with uh, with expectations now, and that can be fleeting in the SEC. You've been part of enough teams to kind of see what the, the ebbs and flows are, are like. What's the the biggest difference with dealing with this year's team and this year's mindset compared to the situation that you walked into last year? Yeah, um, I think this team. I think I know. Last year at this time, this was a team that probably didn't have a whole lot of confidence uh, and we were really trying to build up that confidence and not that they didn't believe in themselves because they did. They showed that with the way they played last season, but it was also with a team that was coming off a two win season and then a losing season before that as well. So they hadn't had a ton of success uh, on the field. So you really try to celebrate every small victory uh, that happened last year on and off the field and just can, and, and build up that confidence. And you still are in a lot of ways. Now that's always will be my coaching style to, you know, to build up confidence and have guys believing in themselves and believing they're invincible and, and whatnot. But you also got to manage it now with some high expectations from the outside last year's group. Nobody thought we were going to win three games, much less win seven and go to a bowl game. Um, now there are expectations for this group, which is what you want. You want those high expectations year in, year out. And it's a, it's a balancing act of, uh, it's a challenge of, uh, continuing to instill that confidence and, and build up the confidence, but also making them realize that, yeah, we had a great win, but we've got a lot in the bowl game, but we've got a lot of work that we have to do, you know, as well. We, we, we won three out of our last five, but the, the two that we didn't win were ugly performances and um, really just building, being more consistent. And, and, and there's so many challenges going into this season, but that's one of them. And I go back to last year, Connor, like we, we started out two and oh, then we went two and two. And then after that, we didn't. We never won two games in a row, and we never yeah. lost two games in a row. So there's a lot to be said for the resiliency of the group of always coming back from a loss, but also being able to handle the success that we had. And when you do have a win, following that up with another win the following week, and, and just continuing to just stack good days. So that's what we're doing right now in spring practice, and we have all the time. But really, just emphasizing, you know, just the consistency and just productive days on and off the field, day in day out, and and uh, for that long term success.
I remember yeah, after the Mizzou game, you're like, we, we didn't handle expectations the way that we should have, you know, like we were maybe, maybe some guys got a little bit too into their press clippings and all those different things. Like that is a difficult thing to have to manage. Have you kind of found your voice of what it's like to be able to like, you know, it, it's easy to, to feel like, okay, I know how to react after a win. I know how to build my guys up to, to celebrate those moments. Like you said, especially when the expectations are low, but like when you have those moments, have you trying to try to find that point of being critical versus just being like, demeaning because I, I got to imagine with the stakes where they are that's not an easy thing and it's not a given especially for a first-year coach in the SEC yeah I don't think I'll ever be demeaning yeah. uh, you know every Sunday after a game win or lose we come into the team meeting and we talk about the things we did well and the things we didn't do well and it may be a huge shutout victory or it may be a lopsided loss but we're going to treat every Sunday the same here's the things we did well Here's the things we did poorly. And there's those things in every game, win or lose. So we're trying to be very honest, um, you know, after every after every game about where we are and what went well the day before and what didn't do well and what we have to do going forward and why we lost the game. And, and me as a coach looking back and saying, why didn't we perform better? And, you know, you go back to that Missouri game, like I heard it all week. I mean, we had yeah. a great win over Florida. The talk out there is that, we can't handle success. There's going to be a letdown because you're going out to Missouri to play a, I think it was a 3 p.m. local time game on a Saturday afternoon. Um, so you, you, you heard that going into it. So you, I did everything I could to combat that, you know, going into the game. And, and I still believe we were ready to play that night against Missouri. Like, I don't think we weren't ready to play. We got off to a hell of a start. Uh, against them, you know, went down the field. I think we scored and then we were actually driving to have a chance to go up two scores. And then we, you know, uh, turned the guy free on a run play and, and had a fumble in the backfield and, and then give Missouri credit because they played really, really well. So they had that had something to do with us not playing well. But I don't think it was because we weren't ready to play uh, or didn't handle expectations. I think, you know, we just Missouri played better than us that day. So as a coach, you look back and say, why is that? Why didn't we play better? But mentally, I felt like we were in a good place. But you always just self-analyze and, and find ways to get better. But but certainly, you know, last year, this year, all the years that I'm going to be here at South Carolina, you, after every game, you try and, you know, dig into what we did well, what we didn't do well, learn from it, and let's try and be better the next week. I, uh, I want to get you out of here with five rapid fire questions. Just first thing that comes to mind, however long you want to answer. Does that work for you? Yep. All right. Uh, biggest problem right now in college football, tampering, NIL, targeting, or faking injuries? Targeting. <laughs> like just because, just because I think it's – I mean, there's, there's different issues, good and bad, but – I think just the inconsistency and then the punishment and things like that. There's people above me that are making those decisions and things like that, but it's, um, it's, it's tough rule, tough to officiate. And there's just a, to me, um, um, a lot of punishments that maybe don't fit, fit the crime right now. How much Mayo did uh, Duke send you in the last few months here? <laughs> Not a lot. Um, I think they're probably mad at me because I said going into it that I wasn't a real big Mayo fan and didn't <laughs> like it, which which I don't love it, uh, but a little bit. They sent me a very – they were fantastic. They sent a, a very nice care package uh, after we got back to Columbia with, you know, mayo and a hard hat that had Duke's mayo <laughs> on it as well. So, they – it was all in good fun. They, they've, been, they've been very good, but not, not a ton of mayo, but they've been a great partner and, and really supportive. 
Sam Pittman told me that his uh, his text to Kirby after he won uh, the national championship was just badass. Uh, what was your text to, to Kirby after Georgia won it all? It wasn't that. I think it was more just, you know, great win. And I knew he was getting flooded with text messages. So we actually talked, you know, two or three days later. But uh, my message to him was just great job, you know, when when they are really, really talented, but they're really well coached. And and I told him that, that, you know, a lot got made of me talking about the five stars that run better than everybody on this call. But they're so well coached and they, they, they play really hard and everybody's gunning for you. And for them to play like they did, I was happy for him. And then I just know what it means to him as uh, an alumnus of the University of Georgia, how important that program is to him. So for me, it was pretty cool just to see that and and uh, being able to celebrate that with his family and Vince Dooley on the field after the game. So just recognizing that and excited for him from somebody that spent the first two years there together with him. Uh, what would have been your dream NIL deal as a player? <laughs> as an all as a as a all-world long snapper. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was a down the line receiver as well. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, you know, Marty Smith on ESPN, he, he and I have talked about this because we both grew up in the same area, but you know, there was a sporting goods store there in or in Blacksburg called CMT Sporting Goods. And uh, probably it would have been just like some sort of deal with with CMT. Marty said it would be like the Newman wide receiver gloves that everybody wore back in yeah. the day. So it would probably have been something like that there in Blacksburg. I was pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty low maintenance. And I'm trying to think, you know, there wasn't a whole lot that I was into back then. I guess it would have been like Sega Genesis or something <laughs> like that when you were playing video games. So it may have been something with the Sega uh, or uh, or something with the local sporting goods store. Uh, last one for you was uh, holding Sir Big Spur the scariest moment of your life. <laughs> I did it yesterday too. Really? Um, yeah. So it's uh, I've done it three times now. Uh, when I first got hired, they brought Sir Big Spur over to the office to meet me. Held him on my in, in, in my uh, in my office. They gave him to me after the game uh, there in the bowl game when I was up on the stage for the trophy presentation. And then uh, Sir Big Spur came by the facility yesterday to present me a painting uh, of holding Sir Big Spur at the bowl game. <laughs> so, so Beth and Van Clark, they're awesome friends of our program and they're, they take care of Sir Big Spur. But it is pretty terrifying because you can like I held him yesterday and you can like literally hear him breathing. Um, oh, God. And I mean, you, you, you see this and all that. And it's like if this guy like flips out on me. What am I going to do uh, right here in the lobby? So that's the only thing going through my head. So it, it's, it is a uh, cervix is awesome, but it is pretty terrifying. I won't lie. Yeah, <laughs> my kids bad. love them. So, I mean, they, my, my oldest daughter, she'll hold him at games and she's a lot braver than I am. Cause I'm thinking about all the things that could potentially <laughs> go wrong. You're holding it out like this. Like it's a, a baby that needs to be changed and not like, <laughs> Not like a baby that you're like cradling or something. I mean, it you is. look scared. I, I would no, be too. I do. I'm, I'm like that the baby that needs to be changed. And then my, my daughter, I've got a picture of my daughter. I mean, she's just sitting here, just literally holding, holding Sir Big Spur and like petting him. So she got, uh, she didn't get that gene from me. Cause I'm, I'm scared. Your daughter's got all the toughness points. <laughs> she does. Jay, <laughs> hey, this has been excellent. I uh, really, really appreciate the time. Best of luck with everything in year two. No, appreciate it. Keep up the great work. Thanks. How about this one? I call it bold and brash. More like-
bike belongs in the trash! <laughs> Sorry, I must have missed that one. Bold and brash, I think we're gonna do two editions of this. 2022 SEC quarterback edition. We should do this being the spring edition, the pre-spring edition, and then maybe like a mid-fall camp edition mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. Things will change a lot probably. Um, but I figured now would be a good time to make some bold predictions about SEC quarterbacks. Spring ball is getting rolling. We've got some battles. We've got guys who can enter the portal. Shout out to D. Davis, the Auburn quarterback, enter the portal after he didn't play a snap as a true freshman in 2021. He was the longest tenured member of the, of the Auburn quarterback room. Mm -hmm. Now that title belongs to TJ Finley, who committed to Auburn <laughs> last May. So yeah. Uh, by the way, Auburn's beat writers were all over this. This is incredible to think about. I, Justin Hokinson was the one who I, I saw had the, like, the best breakdown on Twitter. Uh, the last time an Auburn scholarship quarterback started and finished at the school was 2013 signee Jeremy Johnson. Yes. Jeremy Johnson, man. What a guy. That's the what a lad. That's the only time that's happened in the last decade. And that's um, so we're, we're not including guys who like change positions or something like that. So I think maybe it might go back even to like 2010 or something. Because then if you do Cody Burns, it's like, well, Cody Burns changed positions, changed to receiver. Um, but yeah, just crazy to think about. It. And then that won't be broken, obviously, with transfers like Finley or Zach Calzada or Robbie Ashford. The earliest that drought, which like I said, 2013 signing Jeremy Johnson, that's the last one. Mm -hmm. The earliest that drought could come to an end would be um, Holden Gurner. If he starts, he's the 2022 signee. So if he starts, stays, and then leaves for the NFL, the earliest he could do that is 2024. <laughs> That's a long time, man. Sure, yeah. Anything could happen between now and then, I guess, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yes, we're going to do predictions about quarterbacks. It could be related to the portal. It could be related to uh, individual stats. Who's going to win a specific battle? Um, anything and everything is on the table. Let's start with this one from Andy Goins. Andy says, Bryce Young will be 6'1 by the combine next year. <laughs> That's it. That's all. Okay, yeah, sure. uh, Bryce Young's height, I don't think it's going to dominate the, the, like the, the actual season itself. I hope that we can at least wait until February with that mm -hmm. of next year. Maybe that's ambitious. But people are going to say that he is too short to play in the NFL, even though like there's a bunch of proof against that. And even though Kyler seems to be a psychopath, <laughs> Kyler is at least short and doing just fine. Yeah, but being 6'1 by the time the combine rolls around, I could see that happening. For he, sure. He's one of those guys, too, that it's like he's not really like slight either. Like It's not like he's like a spindly whatever he is, like, you know. 5'11", 6 foot, like he's definitely, I, we, we talked about it all over the season, but it's like, he was taking a beating this year, man. Like he, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like obviously um, they had Hurts and like they had Tua, but like he's just kind of a different guy. And I think that he is more of like a similar body structure to Tua with just a lot of toughness. And it's like, if you are asking that question about him, I don't know what to tell you. Like he obviously only has one starting year, but if he finishes his Alabama career healthy, it's like, what more do you want? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's like Corral and Bryce Young. I, I keep hearing all these people talk about how they're, they're so, you know, they, they really don't have the, or I guess I really don't hear a lot of people talk about this with Bryce Young, but 
Um, with Corral, it's he can't take a hit. What? what? Did you watch him ever? All he did was yeah. take hits. Like, what? What you got the hit number a hundred something probably? But I don't think he's gonna be doing that in the NFL. Yeah, dude took a beating, and yeah, and like a thirty carry, you know, a week after a thirty carry game, whatever it was. He hurt his ankle. All right, like that doesn't mean that he's not durable. And then he played he through the first injury, and then they get the yeah, like no, gets like carted off the field and still <laughs> comes back and he's playing. Yeah, tell me how that guy isn't durable. Like give me a break. Right. Let's go to this one from Emery. Emery says after spring practice and a commitment from Arch Manning, Georgia starts the season <laughs> with only Stetson Bennett the fourth and Gunnar Stockton, both Brock Vandegrift and Carson Beck, transferred before fall camp starts. I don't think Emory's very far off on this one. Um, <laughs> there's the, okay, there's a few different ways to take that. Um, if Arch Manning commits to Georgia, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised. I'm not banking on that exact scenario playing out. It absolutely could. I think Carson Beck is a very likely candidate to transfer. I think the writing is on the wall at this point. I think after last year, he wasn't the guy when JT Daniels went down, even mm -hmm. though we came away from spring thinking he was second string. I think that he understands going into year three, he's got to be able to play. And he's not QB1 right now. you got to be able to go make it happen. I would be surprised if he is still on Georgia's opening day roster. Brock Vandegrift, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I have become increasingly more intrigued with him and I really hope we get to see him play in Todd Munkin's offense because I'm kind of selling myself on his toughness his the way that he is kind of fit into this offense which i didn't think he was the same fit last year but kind of the more you read about him and the things that they would like to be able to do with him rolling out i just think it makes a lot of sense i hope that he doesn't transfer in year two it's certainly possible we should never rule any of these possibilities out but if that were to be the case georgia goes into the season with having Stetson Bennett as the starter. Like I said, he is QB1, you win a national championship. It is unquestioned, you don't have to worry about that. But then if you got Gunnar Stockton as your backup, it's kind of shades of 2017, when true freshman Jake Fromm was your backup. And boom, just like that, of course, Jacob Beeson goes down in the first game, and then, hey, kid, hope you got this thing figured out. And we probably took for granted at the time how wired Jake Fromm was for that moment. There's no guarantee that Gunnar Stockton would be, and I hope for his case that he isn't thrown into the fire like that. But if there is a concern about the Georgia quarterback room, that's it right there. It's losing Vandegrift, because I think at this point, Georgia fans have accepted the very likely scenario that Carson Beck is indeed gone. Setson Bennett's gonna be the guy. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at the beginning of that. I just like, it's funny that like Georgia fans have gone totally back the other way where it's like, oh, we're not scared to hope anymore. We're gonna have Arch Manning and then like six other five-star quarterbacks and it's gonna be great. Like, I, I get what you're like, I don't, I'm not laughing at them getting Arch Manning. I think that it is very possible. I'm, I'm with you. We, we've talked about Brock Vandegrift. He is just a lad's lad. He is like the all-time like stuck in a forest, call one person, it's Brock Vandegrift. Uh, so like, <laughs> I, yeah, I think, Georgia's going to be fine at quarterback <laughs> is, is the moral of the story. I don't think any of these options are necessarily bad. And, uh, hey, again, as an LSU fan, I'd take literally almost any one of these guys in most years. So, actually, look, I actually just overlooked the, the boldest part about that. If that's the case, if you were to see um, Brock Vandegrift and Carson Beck both leave, this is Kirby smart. Kirby's going out to the transfer portal, all right? <laughs> He's, he's figuring something out there. He's, he's trying to get 
some some group of five guy, mm-hmm. some some way, shape, or form, and telling him that, look, man, you're you're a sprained ankle away from being the quarterback of a potentially top three preseason team. Um, you should come to Georgia. It's a different sell than the one that Nick Saban tried to make to Gardner Minshew a few years ago when he told him that he could be the third string guy. And then Mike Leach says, how would you like to lead the nation in passing? Does that sound fun? Sounds more fun than going to Alabama being a third string guy. Worked out for the best for him. All right, let's go to Drew Page. I don't know if Drew Page is trolling by saying this, but we're going to read it off anyways. Mike Wright becomes one of the better quarterbacks Vandy has had. Oh, I, I read this wrong. Let me start over, Drew. My bad. Mike Wright becomes one of the better quarterbacks Vandy has had and gets them to five wins. Mike Wright's got juice. You hear me say that whenever I talk about him. He does have a little bit of juice. I think Ole Miss fans, I think Tennessee fans who had to watch what it was like to try and defend him in, in, those, no, in those November games saw a little bit of life from him. I wouldn't go so far as to say he becomes, well, what is that really saying? One of the better quarterbacks that Vandy has had. Kyle Shermer? <laughs> I was that- Kyle Shermer is number two right now behind Jay Cutler, and I realize that just threw our friend Jordan Rogers under the bus, but even Jordan would admit that Kyle Shermer was a better quarterback than he was in college. Even though Jordan won more games, I, Shermer was probably the better quarterback. Vandy is so. like a walking, like, example of just having a quarterback can't win you college football games because yeah like they had definitional quarterbacks ability with Kyle Scherber and then yeah like Rodgers was nasty Cutler was nasty uh, Rodgers was uh, well here you go for like he's the winning guy you know what I'm saying so you can't call him bad the instability you know what I'm saying that's what I'm saying like yeah, he wasn't bad yeah. he wasn't bad that's like, what I'm saying. saying like in terms yeah. of like most like quote most teams that struggle to the level that Vandy does have quarterback instability every single year. And I'm saying when Rodgers was there, it was like consistency and they were a good team. And it's crazy to think that they've had like a couple of like, I mean, I don't want to call Ken Seals consistent necessarily, but like he's been there, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. They just like have quarterback like somehow figured out and nothing else, like pretty, pretty consistently. I don't know that they have quarterback figured out based on the fact that they just brought in three kids with their 2022 class. No, I know that. I'm just saying, like, when you watch Vandy, it's like you're going to get, you know, decent quarterback play and everything else is going to be a disaster is all I'm saying. Potentially. uh, Potentially. I I will uh, hold on to whatever Mike Wright stock I had. I I think he went the job out of camp. That's not really a bold prediction to say that. We were surprised that Ken Seals stayed, but... Um, I hope for the sake of Vandy football that they get some quarterback play that at least flirts with mediocrity. That's, that's about all you can ask for at this point. It's been here, rough the last Here I was trying to be nice to Vanderbilt. This is your SEC podcast. And what happens? Laughed at. Laughed off the stage. Tomatoes in my face. Let's <laughs> go to this one from Wes Taylor. Uh, Wes says, KJ will be the best SEC quarterback, but will not get acknowledged for it. Um, okay. I think, I think it's starting to, I think things are starting to shift a little bit with KJ. He is a guy who is getting more love, a little bit more love nationally than when some of those initial way too early quarterbacks, top returning quarterbacks are. I think that by the time he goes through maybe um, maybe media days. I don't know if he's going to be representing Arkansas there, but by the time that people actually have time to like sink their teeth into 
all the stuff in 2021 that wasn't just from the contenders and wasn't just the guys who put up like 40 touchdown passes. And when they get to KJ Jefferson and they see some of the things that he did, I think he will start to be getting more love. Do I think he will be that best SEC quarterback this year? My guess is no. That's something we talked about with John Neighbors. Um, there is a path to a Heisman Trophy, which I realize to say that, that sounds very lofty because it absolutely is a program that now has gone more than a decade without an all SEC quarterback. I think KJ should be one of the better quarterbacks in all of college football. Yeah. I think you can make the case that he was last year. Watching the adjustment more, hopefully many of you have already listened to that. If you haven't, you totally should. We've some very, very nice things about KJ. Um, do I think he'll be better than Bryce Young this year? Probably not, probably not, but he's gonna be darn fun to watch and I really hope he takes that next step because if he does, that skill set will get him that national love and he will get acknowledged for it. Benny Hanna, the best name in the Facebook group. <laughs> uh, Benny says, humbled by a fall from grace, Shane Beamer shows Spencer rather the way of mayonnaise and he lights it up in South Carolina and once again becomes a Heisman contender. The Rattler takes are gonna be all over the place. <laughs> they just are. Get ready, South Carolina fans, I'm telling you right now, get ready for both sides of the spectrum with this. And, and embrace it, embrace it. Because it's probably a good thing, as we talked about with KJ, and as brought up with Sam Pittman, it's kind of a good thing if your guy isn't getting all the love. Spencer Rattler does not deserve to be getting all of the love. If everybody is saying he is a top five quarterback in the country coming into this year, then that just tells you they didn't really watch football in 2021, okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's not to say he can't become that, but I think that it'll be good for Rattler to have this, this off season where he's reminded that he did make those mistakes. And I think he will be reminded of that. I don't think Spencer Rattler starts off as an all SEC quarterback in the preseason. Oh yeah. There's three spots, three spots. I think, I think Bryce Young, we know is getting one, right? As long as he's healthy. And then maybe if he's, maybe if he's not healthy, as we saw with George Pickens, you can still be an all <laughs> SEC guy. Listen, man, yeah, you just, the world's your oyster if you're on like one of four teams. Yeah. <laughs> Hooker and then Jefferson would be my my guess is to get those spots and there will be a little bit of this wait and see if he ends up being the guy man dude South Carolina is going to feel like a much different program than the one that we've seen in a long time I I, I mean like even peak Spurrier they're built on that defense they were built on a, a really really good running game mm -hmm. they were not built on lighting it up through the air if they have a guy who looks the part of NFL quarterback, it will just feel different. That's the way it'll be. Um, I don't know that Spencer Rattler gets to that point. I'm interested to see kind of how he handles this, how Marcus Satterfield handles him in that offense. But look, guy was getting number one overall projections last year for a reason. Town is absolutely there. I feel like that was some Will Rogers slander that we just penciled in the hen dog and didn't even consider him. I feel like he's ahead of Rattler right now. Uh, yeah, he, he probably, yeah, he pro when I did my quarterback rankings, my way too early quarterback rankings, I had Rodgers at four, I had Rattler at five. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe shots fired at Will Levis, who knows? See, it seems, um, seems pretty consensus at this point. It, you know what, I think that's I think that's about, those two I think will be battling for that next, as of right now, before football is played, yeah. If Rodgers had finished the season with a win, <laughs> with a win in one of those two games, Egg Bowl or Bowl game, it's a different story with him. Instead, he will be considered one of the better quarterbacks in college football, but 
think ultimately he's going to be left off that preseason All SEC. Mm-hmm. I think he will, despite you know all the numbers. I get it. The cumulative numbers are really good. He improved his efficiency, but that would be my guess based on the way that things played out. He had a really good month though. Had an unbelievable month leading leading up to that Egg Bowl. Uh, let's go to this one from Andrew D. Uh, I always crush that pronunciation. Will, you'll like this one. Miles Brennan leads the conference in TDs, but misses out on first team all SEC behind Bryce Young. Is it bold to say that he's going to start? I was about to say, I'd be, it would be bold to say he's going to start at this point. I feel like they got their guy in there and it's not him, but it sucks for him. I feel like he definitely got done dirty. If I was him, I'd be angry, but that Why, would be. Why? I mean... You, I guarantee you, Brian Kelly wasn't sitting there telling him, you are our unquestioned guy. But he probably laid out the scenario mm-hmm. and said, look, like we can still make a move in the portal. I'm not just going to sit here on my, uh, you know, on my hands. Apparently, they weren't even really active in the portal. If you read the story that Brody Miller wrote in The Athletic about it, it was basically Jaden Daniels was a guy that they were like once he hit the portal, they were really interested and there was a two-way street there. Whereas if it was pretty much anybody else, and I guess maybe this is a positive spin and you could say this in a lot of scenarios, but if it was anybody else, they really wouldn't be looking to the portal and they'd be fine with Miles Brennan. I don't know at this point, we, we gotta see more. Um, I gotta see more to make an official prediction on how this plays out. I wanna see what it looks like with the receivers. I wanna see if Brian Kelly is talking about the receivers more than just whether or not he knows their last name. I texted you that today. I was like, that is the the first, like, bad thing he's done. (laughs) Like, I didn't care about the dancing or anything. It's like, why would you say that publicly? But, yeah, I mean, where where I'm coming from, though, is, like, you know that Denbrock loves these, like, mobile quarterbacks. And I feel like with... I like Miles Brennan. I really do. I'm higher on him than a lot of people. But I think that, like, the the writing is kind of on the wall as far as here's the type of prototype that we like. He's nothing like you. And obviously, it was a decision after Brennan decided to come back to bring him in. You know what I'm saying? So you're right. I just know, knowing how Brian Kelly kind of does business, you know what I'm saying? We both, like, we've seen Brian Kelly. I'm not going to be blind to who Brian Kelly is. I'm, it feels like one of those, like, okay, this is your job, you're good to go, and then this dude just comes in at left field, and now it's like, it feels like he just doesn't have the tools to be a dual threat quarterback, and it seems like that's what the offense wants. So, I feel bad for him, like I said. I, uh, I, I think that even if Jaden Daniels starts off as the guy, though, that, that door would be open. Yeah. And that's always a possibility as well, where if... He, he gets off to a bad start, maybe three games in, and then there's a move that's made, or if it's a situation like what we saw play out of Tennessee last year, and it's pretty <laughs> clear early on, uh, maybe he made the wrong choice. Because, <laughs> yeah, look, like Matt Barry broke down, I, I thought he did a great breakdown mm-hmm. of that, of what he struggles with. He needs to be able to go through his progressions. Is he just throwing it up to dudes? Is he really progressing in the offense? Like that's that's what we still need to see from Jaden Daniels. And if he can do those things, then obviously you would say the physical talents are, are certainly there. And we saw that potential, what it could be like, and especially when he was limiting the turnovers. I mean, that's that's the game-changing quarterback that we thought after his true freshman season was going to kind of be like 
one of the best five quarterbacks in all of college football. That wasn't a crazy conversation a couple of years ago. Obviously, you need to see the way that it progresses in this LSU offense. I'll, I'll in my LSU takes after this, there are three words that are more terrifying than any LSU fan than anything that is two QB system. As long as we can afford that and get rid of that, I don't want any of that. I don't want guys coming in and out. I want one guy, don't care who it is. Anyway. <laughs> I don't think there's any scenario in which Brian Kelly would sign up for that year one. I just don't. I don't. We would, we would rip him to shreds. Um, speaking of two QB systems, Chris Conan says, AR-15 plays his way to a Heisman frontrunner. Emory Jones in the transfer portal. Again, we were, um, I think, I part- at least partially right on that. Mm-hmm. It didn't make any that- sense for him to be a Florida man. Good for him, like go start somewhere, yeah. It wouldn't have made any sense for him to be at Florida in the fall, I think. Right. I think getting some experience, um, getting to kind of talk with this new coaching staff, learn some things from an offensive standpoint, get your undergrad, go play somewhere else, go try and see if it was just a system fit, go try and see if if you have this second life. I think that makes a little bit more sense. Now, of course, the conversation shifts to Anthony Richardson, the battle with Jack Miller, the Ohio State transfer. Matt Hayes wrote about this in First and 10 on SaturdayDownSouth.com, go check it out. Like. We've, we've spoken our piece about AR-15. He is the most talented guy in that room, unless there are things about Jack Miller that we are not hearing, unless there are things on his huddle that we have not seen, and he is just this diamond in the rough from the state of Arizona. I tend to think that AR-15 will have the most favorable path to a starting job. Um, I think, though, playing his way into a Heisman frontrunner, the guys that do that eliminate mistakes. It's the biggest thing with him. You can't have a grenade game. Once you have that grenade game, the haters swoop in. That's the way that Twitter works. We've seen in the, maybe in the 20th century when not everybody could sit there and watch every single game. You could have that really bad game. But now in this day and age, man, like you're on ESPN and you're you know, throwing for four yards per attempt and you throw four picks. Like that's all she wrote. Mm-hmm. So the margin for error is really, really slim. The talent is, is certainly off the charts, and I, I really hope he's able to limit those mistakes because, man, when he was right last year, it was so fun to watch. Let's go to this one. Speaking of the Heisman, uh, Jesse Folly says, the Heisman Trophy will be won by an SEC player, but not Bryce Young. Huh. Love that one. Yeah. That's interesting because... Um, I don't know that the list of preseason candidates is really long. I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it is. Uh, the Will Anderson thing, it'll be talked about. It's really hard to get to that level, especially when he's going to be compared to himself and this version of himself that somehow didn't make it to New York. That's gonna be the lazy comps. So unless there's this correction for last year and there's this overwhelming narrative for him with how he impacts the game and stuff. And if he just takes his game to somehow an even higher level, man, even that's gonna be tough. Um, he's gonna be the obvious one. I don't think based on what we've seen so far with the bright, with the way Brian Kelly has talked about Keishon Boutte that you could all of a sudden put him in that conversation. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it's, they got some really good quarterbacks in the conference this year, man. I, yeah, I, I really like that as like a, if you could take Obviously, like winning two Heisman's is pretty much like once you win your one Heisman, like we've talked about, it's like everyone just like oh, there's a Heisman winning quarterback. He's got to play better than this. It almost becomes like a mark, like 
for, for your ongoing college career. But yeah, it's like, I, I love like the field in that situation. That's cool. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll have a lot more Bryce Young repeat conversations just because it's not really a conversation you get to have very often. It's just not. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, Mark Ingram, that was something that was talked about a good amount with him repeating. It was talked about with Lamar. Um, it is really, really hard to do. It was talked about with, with Manziel, of course. How could I forget that one? Um, Tebow, of course. But it is, uh, it's going to be really difficult for anybody for, from the SEC to win the Heisman. And while I do think there are guys like KJ and Hendon who absolutely have a path, man, um, I don't know that the SEC continues its streak. Three consecutive Heisman trophies won might come to an end this year. Um, but J.P. Blakely thinks that Hendon Hooker could be part of that conversation. J.P. says, Hendon Hooker will likely be the best quarterback in the SEC this year, likely Heisman contender in his second year as the starter. Look, man, he's legit. Mm-hmm. He is absolutely legit. He's not a perfect player. He's not. There are things about his game that, that need to be figured out. He takes a little bit too long sometimes. Um, that decision process hopefully will be quicker working with the ones. I don't want him to take the amount of sacks that he did because I think it kind of got to him a little bit later in the year. You kind of saw maybe mm-hmm. when that limits his mobility. Mm-hmm. If he can be right though, if he can be right from start to finish, he, he will be part of that conversation. He absolutely will. He has the ability, he has the surroundings, he has the offensive play caller to make that happen. And look, like, Tennessee is not going to be winning all of these games a billion to nothing like some other Heisman contenders as well. You know, like they will still probably be throwing in some key games. But <laughs> we talked uh, something that, that was brought up. We had Trey Wallace on was like, you got to get that marquee win. Got to be Bama, got to be Georgia, got to be Florida, got to be one of those teams if you're a Tennessee quarterback trying to make that next step. Mm-hmm. That's what oh, that's I mean, you almost, especially with Bryce Young, is like you almost have to beat Bama. At Tennessee to win Heisman because you're going to be compared to Bryce Young. You know what I'm saying? He was going to be heady when you beat him. Yeah. Even though I thought Matt Corral in the Heisman conversation that some people said died against Alabama, I still said he absolutely still has a path. Do not write him off just based on what you saw. Even though Bryce Young ultimately won the Heisman, I still thought Matt Corral had that chance even though he lost the head-to-head. It was pretty clear. Let's end with this one. Uh, topical. This is good. Caleb Tillman says, JT Daniels transfers to Missouri and proves he wasn't the most talented quarterback on Georgia's roster. Oh, <laughs> uh, what would prove that? What would prove that? You know, like, I, I would love to see JT Daniels at Mizzou. I really would. He took a visit, as we talked about in the Open the other day. Um, see, Oregon that's why State, you West have your Virginia. spring game early, actually, is to host him. There you go. Worked out for him. Look at that. One for one. I don't know if that was the initial intent. <laughs> you just, you gotta move heaven and earth whenever you have that kind of, I don't know. Hey, hey, we're gonna make sure that we're scrimmaging on the weekend that you're here so you can see this offense. Look, there's something to be said for that and getting to show a guy what the offense actually will look like. I, I think JT Daniels would be a, a really nice fit at Mizzou. And as much as I bang the drum for him to be a fit at Auburn to potentially save Brian Harson's job, if that isn't a two-way street, then why not go to a place like Mizzou where you've already been doing game plans against this division for the last two years. Mm-hmm. You are going to have a really favorable path to the starting job with all due respect to Brady Cook, with all due respect to Tyler Macon, to Sam Horn, the incoming true freshman who won't be there until the summer. Yeah, you'd be set up well. And the name of the game right now is not winning a national championship. Like JT Daniels just did that as a backup, but 
He experienced that. Mm -hmm. That's not his goal at his next stop. His goal is to get to the NFL, get to a power five school, play against good competition, good enough competition, and try and be the guy, be the guy from start to finish. That's what you're trying to do. Think Mizzou with the surroundings, with all the emphasis on the running game that Eli Drinkowitz loves to have. I, I think that Mizzou would make a lot of sense. Oregon State actually makes more sense than people realize too, just because of what Jonathan Smith is doing with that offense. They have some pretty favorable surroundings with the offensive line. We don't need to get into Oregon State takes today though. I, uh, it's just a funny little factoid. My buddy called me while I was doing something. He's like, oh my gosh, Daniels transferred to LSU. And I was like, oh my gosh, JT Daniels has come to LSU. <laughs> and he was like, no, no, the other one. And I was like, oh. <laughs> it's just very funny that they were like two Daniels transferring potentially the SEC. Two J Daniels. Yes. Transferring. Yes. It took me a second to be like, oh, totally different guy. Okay. Yeah. Very, very different. Um, but could have similar similar storylines in 2022. We will see. Uh, but yeah, we'll do those again. Let's do those again in fall. I think that'll make a little bit more sense. Yeah. I think we'll have a lot of these quarterback battles. A uh, little bit more situation. A little bit more situated. The transfer portal maybe becomes a little bit clearer by then, and we can really truly take off with some bold bold takes. Probably a little bit more statistically focused predictions we will have in the fall. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to this podcast if you have not already. Subscribe to College Football Uncensored. Go subscribe to our basketball newsletter, Blue Chip Grit. Adam Spencer, Dustin Schutte doing great things over there. Join the Facebook group. Hear your name read on air with Figuring It Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Enjoy more madness. Talk soon.